Hey, welcome to Monday Night School. I got a bang here. I do. I have a, a bang energy drink. It's a blue Raz. I'm feeling good. Haven't even really gotten into it yet. Just had those first few sips. I do genuinely love the taste of it at this point. I guess at every point. Aside from the very first one, which was cotton candy flavored. The very first bang I ever had was that cotton candy flavor, which... I mean, that flavor is just doomed to fail. I'm surprised there is so much artificial cotton candy. Like, I had some sort of bubble yum as a kid that was cotton candy flavored, and it was absolutely awful. And obviously it appeals to somebody, but I feel like that's a very specific fetish. Cotton candy flavored. Artificial cotton candy flavoring. But yeah, I do have a bang here. You know, I was thinking about this exchange I saw between people online where a guy was talking about how he is not a Catholic. I can't remember if he was raised that way, but he was talking about how he's not a Catholic, but he's still, he's attracted to the system. He's attracted to the base, the kind of the rituals, the decoration of it all. He feels drawn to it, but he says he doesn't feel the call to faith. He was saying what's kept him away from becoming a baptized Catholic, going full on into Catholicism, is that he doesn't feel the call to faith. And I feel like that's a very valid, I mean, because to me, like, I wouldn't be into all this stuff if the faith hadn't sort of preceded it. You know, if I hadn't already felt something, if I hadn't already had a sensation, and that sensation hasn't led me into any one specific niche, you know, obviously I end up in certain places more often than not with it, but it hasn't told me, oh, you got you to gotta get baptized. You already got all this faith. You got to get baptized. Oh, you already have all this faith. You know, why don't you buy the beads? Why don't you buy the robe? Why don't you buy the, the sitting pillow? Why don't you start going here? Why don't you start hanging out with these people? Why don't you start calling yourself this? You know, I guess in, in having sensed this faith prior to all of that, prior to actually committing to, to some sort of practice or discipline or view, that showed me that I don't necessarily need all those other things. The fact that that feeling, that, that faith... And that's a big, wide-open word for me. When you say faith, people tend to think of it as capital F, faith in the Christian God. And they really don't like it when you say, oh, it includes that. It includes that. I don't even like saying that, but I don't know what else to say. That's just the truth. At some point, you just have to say, hey, you know, I don't, I don't love the way the truth sounds, but I have to say it. But, uh, you know, because this sense of faith preceded my interest in practicing and forming a discipline around it, it showed me that you don't need all of that to feel that. But you realize the practicality of developing a, a discipline surrounding your faith or having a practice. And you realize that that enhances it. It doesn't just enhance it, it just enhances your entire being, and hopefully the, the being of other people too. So it's more a matter of, oh, I, I already sensed this, 
So I might as well do other, I might as well structure my life in such a way that it reinforces that, that it keeps me in contact with that, that maybe if nothing else, it keeps me aware of it. I think that's what it all is. I think that's what any kind of spiritual discipline or practice is. It's like keeping you aware of that thing that you already have access to, making sure that, because it's so easy to forget about it. And I forget about it all the time. And you know how much I bring this crap up. So, you know, if I forget about it all the time, that saying something. But anyway, I saw this exchange between people and this guy was basically saying like he's attracted to Catholicism, but he doesn't feel the call to faith. And a, and a friend of his said something to him where he was like encouraging him to actually make the jump and become a, a, a full-blown Catholic. Which, you know, the thing is, it seemed well-meaning enough, like it seemed fine, but you know, you could tell it did have tones of conversion. But what stood out to me, and the reason why I'm even talking about this, is because at the end of this guy's message, he said, I'd really like to be able to call you brother someday. And I'm guessing that that's used within Catholicism. I'm guessing that baptized Catholic men call themselves brothers. Obviously, father is used for priest. So I'm guessing that's very specific, but it got me thinking in general, and it's like, why does this guy have to go through the ritual? Why does this guy have to get decorated in a certain way for you to call him brother? You know, it seems like he's already your brother. You're already friends. And I guess it just made me think, I was like, I don't want to go down any road where somebody has to go through a very ritualized ultimately decorative process like even if that decor even if it's decorating something much deeper which i believe it is i still don't want somebody to have to like have to get their license for me to call them brother because i know who is a brother to me and who isn't and in a general sense yeah everybody's your brother everybody yeah everybody's potentially your brother um but you know i'd like to be the judge i'd like it's an it's an intuitive thing I intuitively know who my brother is and who isn't. I don't want it to involve any kind of ceremony or decoration. Oh, you're now officially my brother. That would, it's like that time that uh, I've mentioned it on here before. Where I, I made this friend years ago. He's a good. He's a great guy. But we were drinking, and he's and it's like we had become drinking buddies. Where like every weekend we were getting drunk and like hanging out in bars, and then he's like, "Yeah, man, it's." we got kind of a bromance going on and I was just like, Oh man, you just all goodwill just drains right to the floor. Cause it wasn't even a gay thing. Like it wasn't even like he, he was hinting around in some, about some kind of gay thing. It was just, he was excited to have made a new friend. And I mean, so was I, I mean, it was, I was having a good time, but it was just like to put it in that context, to like call it a bromance. And I mean, I got the same feeling when I read this Catholic thing where this guy was like, I'd really like to be able to call you brother someday once you're baptized. And it's just like, you just made that ugly. You just made that idea very ugly. I guess it's like anytime you put the wrong emphasis on something that should be natural, I always feel that way. It's like you don't have to put it in that context. And I mean, I get it though. Like I get with the Catholic, the Catholic brotherhood thing. I I get the idea. Like if you're a Freemason, you know, 
there's there's a certain relationship there that you have with other Freemasons. They are your brothers. They are your fraternal brothers. I guess that's kind of redundant. Fraternal brother. Oops. Um, but it's just that sort of thing where it's, I don't know. But I mean, that's the reason why I'm not a Freemason too. That's the reason why I'm not part of any actual club or formal group is because I guess I just, as much as I, I like ritual and ceremony in my own way, I've just never been able to buy in completely to those things. And I do see them as a distraction. And I think that when people go through ceremonies and rituals, as important as they are, it also leads them down a tunnel. And I mean, I even feel that way because, you know, this goes back far. Like, I didn't go to... The only graduation I ever went to was like my my sixth grade elementary school graduation. I guess I had to go to my junior high one, but it's like I didn't go to my college graduation. I didn't go to my high school graduation. Not as an act of protest. Like sometimes you'll hear about somebody doing that to sound badass. It just didn't make any sense. I knew that I had graduated. I was going to get my diploma no matter what. I just didn't feel the need to participate in that ceremony. And I don't think anybody's stupid for doing, oh, you're so stupid for wanting to wear the cap and gown. You're so stupid. You know, I don't feel that way about it at all. Just for me personally, I was just like, I don't need to go to this. The event that this is recognizing transpired without this ceremony. It's kind of like the faith thing, where it's like, I, I was able to develop a feeling of faith without committing myself to a religion. And it actually made me more interested in religion because I was like, you know, there's something to this feeling. And when you start experiencing synchronicity, you know, it's not like you're just picking a random spot on the map saying, I'm going to dig here. It's like you get led in certain directions and that's what happened with me. But still, it's kind of like that with the graduation thing where it's like, I already graduated. So why do I need to go to this ceremony to commemorate the graduation? And I get for some people, it's like having that distinction, like that moment where you can now say, I'm no longer a senior in high school and I'm going to be a freshman in college. But it's like that itself is a form of that tunnel vision where it's like now you start thinking of yourself as a college student. Oh, I, gra- I graduated high school and I have these photographs of myself in a weird ritualistic cap and gown and that proves that I'm no longer in high school because I went through that ceremony it proves that I'm not in high school and now I'm a college student but the thing is when I went to college I didn't feel like I was in college like I knew I was going to college but I I guess what I mean is I didn't feel like a college student like I, I met a friend in college who said something to the effect of Well, this is kind of the thing we're supposed to do because we're in college now. I don't even remember what it was about. And I just remember thinking, really? We have to do the things that a college student is expected to do because we're in college. But it actually has nothing to do with the act of going to college and the reason why we're in college. And I don't know. It's just it's the same thing. Like, I mean, I think there's like kind of a a pattern to everything I'm saying here where it's like. You got to be a brother. You got to actually get baptized. Oh, you should make the jump and get baptized. Because what's so funny to me is like that person's a Catholic and they have faith. I'm going to assume they have faith. And they're encouraging this guy who's saying, oh, the reason I haven't made the jump to Catholicism is that I don't feel the call to faith. I like everything else about it. 
but I don't feel the call to faith. And this guy who apparently has faith is like, well, you should make the jump anyway. And I would say that guy's going to be a lot more valuable to Catholicism, and Catholicism is going to be a lot more valuable to him if he feels the calling. Because I can't imagine pursuing my interests without that. I just can't. And obviously, the communal and cultural and just social aspects of religion, organized religion, they give people a lot more than just in it gives people a lot more than just access to faith i don't want to say this doesn't sound right to me access to faith it's like it it i guess it's more than just a spiritual experience for people you know and i would never take that away from them but i would also i would never encourage somebody who doesn't feel the calling to commit to something that in my opinion requires some sort of sense it should feel like going with the grain because that's the way it has been for me. It doesn't mean that things don't slow down. And you're kind of like, where am I? Where did I end up? Where am I going? But it's like you do go with the grain. And then that, you know, it, the grain goes with you. <laughs> it's kind of been my experience. And I, I'm, I'm going against the grain with plenty of other things. But in that one regard, I would say that I have not even made an effort because that's that's the nice thing about going at the grain is that you don't make an effort but it it's nonetheless deliberate which i think is a difficult that's kind of a, a dilemma people have created for themselves in our society today maybe always maybe it's always been there but it's definitely there today where people tend to mix up effort and exertion versus deliberation, being deliberate. Like sometimes people think if you're going to be deliberate about something, you have to put effort in. You have to force it. No, deliberate is mental. You know, deliberate is you have a plan, you have an idea, you know what you're doing, or you at least have an idea as to what you're trying to do. Whereas, I mean, you can you can put tons of effort into something and have no freaking idea. I mean, think about all the things that you've done in your life. I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> think about all the things you've done in your life where you put all this effort in, you tried to force it, but you had no concept of what you were even trying to do. And that's good sometimes. You know, sometimes I think you need to go through those exercises. Those, You know, I think that you do learn something from those. But still, it's like as far as actually getting somewhere goes, it's difficult to do it that way. But, you know, thinking about, like, just this guy who, like, you know, you could tell he was trying to convert this guy. And he was kind of hang, hanging this status over his head, too, by saying, like, I would really like to be able to call you brother. Because that kind of plants a seed in the other guy's head where it's like, yeah, it'd be, it'd be cool if somebody calls me brother. And it's like, well, listen, brother. Get a hold of me. I'll call you brother all the time. You'll get sick of it. You get sick of me calling you brother. You don't got to get baptized for it. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm really put off by Catholicism. Not even, I don't even, I wouldn't even say the the beliefs or anything, just the social aspects. And not even the fact that they have so many goddamn audiophiles. 
And that's just true. Like even recently, like I mentioned, I think it was in yesterday's episode, the old mob boss, Chin Giganti, very famous old mafia boss. And his brother was a priest who he always defended his brother. was like, he's being persecuted by the government. He's just a sick old man. He's being persecuted. Of course, he was a mafia boss. But it turns out that the, his brother, too, the priest, Louis, Louis Giganti, he's very famous in his own right. Uh, Father Louis Giganti. He was like very involved, like an activist in New York. Uh, but it came out recently that he also molested kids too. <laughs> and it, like it's funny because I've been you know following the subject of the mob my entire adult life. And when I first read about Father Louis Giganti, like the first thing I thought was like he probably molested kids too. And that was like 15, 16 years ago. And sure enough, he did. Sure enough, accusations have come out. Uh, but a lot of audiophiles in the Catholic Church that don't even need to go into it. Everybody knows about it. But it's not even that. It's not even that stuff. It's not even the corruption. It's not even the abuse. I mean, that's part of it. There's just something... I mean, I think that the, the way that guy talked today, because the way that guy talked to the other guy, and this is just something I observed online. It's silly to even talk about. But, hey, it's it's just like... You know, there's no shame in talking about seeing what people say online like I do feel a sense of shame when I do it but in reality it's like it's probably more intelligent than a conversation you you would hear in a restaurant yet somehow it seems more acceptable to say like oh I I overheard these people talking in the grocery store it's like chances are some exchange you saw online is more intelligent and more thought-provoking and in this case it was but even just this exchange I feel like kind of summed up my resistance to Catholicism, which there's a need to convert there. It's, it's very, um, it's very strictly defined. It's very black and white more so than other branches of Christianity. It's very hierarchical. It's overcomplicated. Like they've gotten so lost in hierarchy and ceremony and ritual that you can really barely find anything within that. I mean, you can. I mean, I've read about, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas. I find him fascinating. I find many, especially historic Catholics, especially those who were prone to mysticism, I find them very interesting, and I think they have, there's a lot to offer there in reading about them. And I've only, I, I wouldn't even say I've scratched the surface. Oops, one second here. But but even this like positive, I guess what it is, it's like even this positive exchange between a Catholic and a guy who just kind of has a, a peripheral interest in it. Even that though kind of summed up my issues with it, which is like he didn't just dis- he didn't discuss any of the ideas with him. His immediate impulse was to try to convert him, and then hang- hanging this like I wish I could call you a brother, but I can't. You know that that kind of sums it up for me. But it's something I've run into on my own before. It's like I've, I, and I think I've talked about it on here before, but a couple of weeks after my mom died, I got invited to a, a Buddhist chanting event at a house. A friend of mine is part of this, I guess you'd call it a sect, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, like basically part of a group who chants, like they're, they're into chanting. Like, I don't know if they meditate, but it's, it's sort of their meditation is they chant in the morning. They have beads. They have these altars. It's it's very cool, you know. It's very interesting. Like I was, I, I went. 
partially because it just it felt necessary. You know, it, it was actually it was uh, New Year's Eve, just two or three weeks after my mom died. So it felt like a special thing to do. It felt like the right thing to do on New Year's Eve. And I, I, I got a lot out of it. You know, not necessarily exactly what they were offering, but I got a lot out of the experience. I'm glad I went. But it was an interesting thing because, you know, I could I could kind of feel there was like this, not pressure, like my friend is awesome. Like she wasn't trying to pressure me to join her group or anything. But she was, you know, when I met up with her, she she gave me kind of this primer on Buddhism before we went. And I'd been reading, you know, I'd, by that time I had already read multiple books, spent a lot of time studying Buddhist ideas. I was already, I'd been meditating for quite a while, for two or three years maybe. But I didn't identify as a Buddhist, but I, I had already accepted a lot of Buddhism into my life and I had studied it a little bit. And she was explaining some concepts and I realized that I already knew what she was telling me. And my impulse was to say, oh, I already know. I already know that. Oh, I read about that. But I, I caught myself and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm her guest tonight. I'm going to let her explain this to me because you know what? She might explain it in a way that is different than what I took it to mean. You know, she might have a different interpretation. Her group might have a different interpretation as you will find everywhere. So I was like, I'm not going to just say I already know this. And that goes back to being a kid. Like my mom taught me as a kid, if somebody ever gives you a gift and you already have it, don't tell them you already have it. Thank them and you know, keep it, return it or, you know, give it to somebody else. But if somebody gives you a gift for your birthday, for example, like a toy you already have, just thank them for it as if you were getting it for the first time and move on. I never forgot that. That was really strong uh, parenting advice, you know? Like my mom just got it. Like, and she grew up poor. It's not like she grew up in a background where she was getting tons of stuff she already had. And had to develop this system where she's like, oh yeah, maybe it's better if I don't tell them. No, she that wasn't her background at all. She just kind of knew. She just knew that what you do when someone... What she what that taught me, her saying that, like I, I was a little kid. I was like four or five years old. And she said, like, pretend that you didn't already... Pretend that you don't already have it and thank them for it. What that taught me, and I didn't even realize it at the time, and I don't know if she even realized it. Because it was just a... It, it's a tactful way of handling a situation like that and it doesn't hurt somebody's feelings. But beyond that, like thinking about it now, I'm like, what that is, it's like she was teaching me that somebody giving me a gift isn't just about me getting a material item. She was teaching me that this is also about them and how they feel giving you this. And you realize over time that that's what a lot of gift giving is. Because, I mean, I've had people try to give me things before and I say, oh, I, I, I really don't need it. And sometimes you have to be firm about that. It's not like every time somebody, and, and then the thing is too, like, it's not like my mom's advice is 100%, you, you, must, you must always, always pretend you don't have what they're giving you and thank them. Like, if you're close to somebody, you can say, oh, hey, I actually already have this. Like, if a family member or a very close friend tries to give you something... Like, I've had a friend try to give me a record before, and I've been like, I already have this. Because there reaches a certain point where it's like, you don't want to have to deal with one more thing. Actually, a friend of mine who listens to this show, years ago, I had owed him some records, 
and I sent them to him. And because I was late, or I mean, it's not like it was on a timeline and he wasn't bugging me for them. But because I had this in my head that, oh, I, I waited too long and now the records are late. And you know, the best thing to do in the world is to throw in extra records. So I threw in an extra record or two to make up for the fact that I, you know, waited two or three months to send the record. And then when he got it, he was like, oh, just so you know, you, you gave me these extra things that I, I didn't order, that I didn't ask for. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not upset about it. I'm just letting you know. It's like you sent me things that I didn't ask for. And somebody's initial response would be, well, fuck you. I sent you free things. Fuck you. Fuck you. You know, somebody's initial response would be that way. And I would bet this person has experienced that. I bet he's had people who say that to him. But it was really interesting to me because it's like I sent him things that he didn't want. Or it's not even that he didn't want them. It's not like, oh, I hate these. It's just that it wasn't what he was planning on getting. And you think about space. You think about some people try to live. Like this guy in particular, I know him to be a minimalist from our communication over the years. I know he's somebody who doesn't like having a bunch of extra stuff around. And I know that he lives a very minimal lifestyle. So even though to me it's just like, it's a record. I sent you an extra record to make up for the fact that I was late. And that he's like, oh, you sent me some, I, you know, I didn't plan on getting extras. And that also makes, that's now something that he has to deal with. Like if he doesn't want it, he now has to sell it or throw it away and, you know, go through all that. It's like you basically force a hoarder's dilemma on somebody when you give them stuff you don't want. They now have to look at it, decide if they want to keep it for a later date, for a rainy day. Um, Am I going to use this on a rainy day? Maybe. Do I want to sell it? Oh, it's a lot of effort. I don't want to throw it out because that feels wasteful. You know, so it's like you, you force a dilemma onto somebody when you give them things that they don't need or want. And if they express that to you, you know, even if it's just a matter of like, I don't have the space for this. I don't have the time for this. Your gut impulse is to be like, you know, fuck, your ego is hurt. Your ego got poked with a little, a sharp little needle. But it's good to get through that. Like that that friend saying that back then, it was it didn't turn into a fight because I I remember reading the email and I could feel the the bile. I could feel the bile rising in me. And I, I remember thinking, like, you don't appreciate the free record I sent. But you think about the intention behind that too. Where it's like my intention wasn't just, oh hey, here's a free record. My intention was trying to kind of get uh I was kind of see, I mean, it's going against the grain almost. It's, it's like I was trying to force a certain response. I was trying to force this person to be less frustrated or mad about the fact that I took a long time to send the records. So I thought that I could smooth it over by throwing in free records. But the whole thing was manufactured in my brain where this person, one, wasn't mad at me. We're friends. He knows I'm not going to rip him off. Sometimes you take a while to do things, you know, so it's like there was no, there was no animosity to begin with, but yet I manufactured the possibility of animosity over the, because of the time I took to send it. And I thought that I could smooth it over. I mean, I, I've, I got in a fight with a girlfriend years ago. I got really drunk and I was just extremely obnoxious. 
You know, I didn't I didn't say or do anything hurtful. I was just really fucking obnoxious. This is like 2015. No, it's 2016. It was like right when all the hysteria of that year was ramping up. I was drinking heavily and my girlfriend had to deal with that all the time. And there was one night though where I was just like I was just gone. She really had to babysit me. And so the next morning, hungover, I went and I bought her a bubble tea. Except they didn't have bubble tea. They were out of the little, they were out of the bobas, the boba fets. They were out of those. So I had to, it had to be, it was something similar. It was like these gummies or something. It was like instead of boba, it was like gel, these weird little like gelatinous shapes that were fruity or something. And she liked boba. Like I, she never told me if she liked uh these other gelatinous shapes. So I had to already settle. Like here I was, I, and, and the only reason I was getting this for her was as some sort of apology to try to make things okay. Like, oh, I, I was, comp- our, our relationship is on the rails and I behaved extremely obnoxiously last night when I was drunk. I know what'll smooth over this. It's a situation that was slowly unraveling for, you know, months. And I thought that, oh, if I buy her a bubble tea, that'll make it better. If I buy her a boba, it'll, it'll make it better. And they didn't even have boba, which is the thing she likes. And yet I still, like that should have been a sign to me right there that, oh, maybe you don't need to do this. They're out of the thing that you're trying to get for her that she prefers. And so you're going to get her like this other version that seems kind of weird. Like whatever these gelatinous things are seemed far less appealing than bubble tea. And then I went to her work. And I dropped it off. I gave it to her and I left. It didn't help. You know, I mean, my intention was my intention was good, but it wasn't pure. I was trying to get her to be less mad at me or to like salvage the relationship by buying her a, a bubble tea and they didn't even have bubble tea. So that's that's going against the grain. Like those are the little signs that sometimes you have to look for where it's like, oh yeah, maybe I'm not supposed to be buying this for her to try to make up for a bunch of bullshit I did. And those little signs, like they're out of boba. Like when have you ever gone to the bubble tea shop? And I don't go very often, but when have you ever gone to the bubble tea shop and they're out of the very thing they sell? That's, and then you still power through and are like, well, I'm going to get the closest thing. It's the same thing. Like when you try to do something to make up for something, it doesn't mean there isn't a time and a place to do that. Sometimes you can like buy something for somebody and it does make a difference. You know, I'm not saying there's never a situation where that works. Like there are other people where I've sent them an extra record before for taking my time or just to be nice or whatever it is. And they, and they, you know, they're like, great. Like I, I wanted this. It's a free thing. I've, I've had that same feeling myself. I've been on both sides of this specifically with music where like I've ordered things before and they've sent me a free record and I'm like score score they got I got I got I got a free jewel I got a free jewel you know I've I've had that feeling before many times I love things you know and and even if it's something I don't like it's like oh here's here's something for me to check out that I didn't have to pay money for but then people have also sent me free things before where I'm just like oh this is just something I have to deal with now I have to either like put this into my collection and just pretend that I I care about it. It's going to take up like, even if it takes up a centimeter of space, it's like, it's still taking up space. It's still something I have to look at and think about once in a while. 
or I, you know, it's just, I've, I've been on both sides of that where I have felt burdened by gifts and I've also felt, you know, lightened up by gifts as well. You know, it's not one or the other, but, uh, you know, going back to my mom's advice, which was just, you know, pretend that you already, or pretend that you don't have it if somebody gives you something. That's a good general rule. And what that communicates is that this exchange is not about you getting things. It's about the exchange. And I mean, I read that, I don't know if I read the passage, but I talked about it a couple months ago, how there's a Buddhist passage about how enlightenment isn't like, like, you know, when you give something to somebody that they need, the enlightenment in that situation is not you or them. You are not enlightened because you gave somebody something. And they are not enlightened because they receive something from you. The enlightenment is in the process. It's in the exchange. That is the enlightenment. And in some bizarre way, that's kind of what my mom was telling me by saying, like, this isn't about you getting that. And it's not purely about them giving it either. You know, it's not, it's in that process in between. And so be careful what you say. And I thought about my mom's advice. It stayed with me my entire life. And I haven't always followed it perfectly. I can be rude. If you can believe that. If you, can be- if you listen to the show and can believe it, I can be very rude. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, when my friend was, was taking me to this chanting event and she was kind of breaking down some core concepts of Buddhism and the way she was explaining them, to be totally honest, I did feel that I already knew. But I didn't know that until she finished. And if I had just cut her off and said, I, I already read, do you think I don't have Wikipedia? Oh, oh you, you think that I don't have Wikipedia? <laughs> I, I've read about this. You know, you, know, it's, 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 you don't want to be, you just, you don't want to be that way. Especially in a spiritual setting. And so she explained these ideas. And, and I mean, I wouldn't, I, I bet she did say something that I hadn't thought of in a certain way before. I, you know, I bet I did get something out of it. You know, I don't think it was just like, oh, she said exactly what I expected her to say. I think she probably did say something that caused me to think. But I made a decision, like, as soon as she started talking, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't need to interrupt her and say I already know this. Because she very well might tell me something I don't know. She very well might give something a different spin. My, I'm a guest here tonight. We're going to go to this event and my get my, I'm just going to take it in. And that's exactly what I did. And I, I felt no desire to go back because there was an element to it. Like they weren't, they were all cool, but like there was an element to it. Like I was talking to the people who run it and I could kind of feel this subtle pressure. Like, you know, I was, I was just talking about where I come from and I could kind of feel this subtle pressure where it was like, join our group. Not because they are better, not because of any superiority reason, but it's just, it's hard to avoid that sort of tribalism where it's like they want more people. Cause I mean, and they talked about it too. Like one of their, one of the foundations of what they do is propagation. And that's the word they use where one of, one of their group's goals is to propagate these ideas and you propagate those ideas by having more people join, more people participate. And 
they were great people. So it wasn't like they were, but, it, but that, I think that tells you everything is the fact that like even really kind, well-meaning, wonderful people, they still want you to convert. And it's a real dilemma, you know, cause I mean, as an individual, it's easier for me to like, when I talk to somebody about my beliefs, my faith, it's easier in the sense that like, I have nothing to convert them toward. And I make it a point not to lead them or try to encourage them to go down any particular path. And I mean, I've really, I've, I've really withdrawn from talking about these things with people. Actually, I, I've run up against some issues that I hadn't in years past when I was first dedicating myself more to this. And I guess I've become acutely aware of the fact that. Everyone has their own place that they're coming from. And even though we're all similar, even though we're all brothers, everyone's coming from their own place. And it's not my place to interfere. It's not my place to give advice. Not that I was trying to do that, but I've just had some exchanges with people where I realized, oh, I, I, I want to be very careful about how my words, how my perspective influences them. And I don't want them to think that my way is the right way. And it is just, a, it's such a personal experience. Even though you can relate, you can say, oh, this sensation. But then also when you see somebody going down a path and you think, oh, you know, that, that's probably not the right path. This might, this rubber band might break and snap back in your face. You want to be able to say that to them, but you just, you run the risk of telling people what to do. And not even telling people what to do, but just kind of overstepping your bounds. And so I was hit with that feeling a lot. But that said, it's like the what's missing from my life, too, is the fellowship. But the fortunate side of that is you can feel that even if people aren't talking about the thing that you're talking about. You can feel that even if people aren't participating in your practice. You can feel that with anybody. You can experience spiritual fellowship with any single person you interact with, and you don't have to make it about that. You don't have to make the conversation about that. You can actually have a meaningful exchange with another human being that does transcend our you know, I hate to call it an earthly prison because <laughs> I don't see it that way. But it's like it, it transcends the limitations that are normally there when you're stuck in your own head, when you're stuck in this system. Not the political government system, but just the system that we as human beings have created for ourselves, the way we interact with each other. You can have, you can have interactions with people that transcend that and you don't have to even bring up the spirit. You don't have to bring up God. You don't have to bring up any kind of niche terminology that we've been crafting over the eons. Dharma. You don't have to bring any of that up. And the exchange itself is the enlightenment. Just like giving somebody a gift, receiving a gift, the exchange is the enlightenment. And that's sacred, not the object being given to you, 
not even the, the thing being said. Because you always run the risk of getting fetishistic about this stuff. Like when I look at uh, Catholicism, I see a lot of fetishism. For that matter, when I look at Buddhist temples, I see a lot of fetishism. It's hard to avoid. I think we all have, we all inevitably have some sort of fetishism when it comes to what we're interested in, what we gravitate toward. But I'm very resistant to it. And I think one of the reasons for that is because it's my own goddamn fetishism that made me pursue all this stuff. It's trying to escape that. And, I, and obviously I'm not talking about sexual fetishism, although that could, be, that could play a role. Not so much for me. I'm like Jeffrey Dahmer's dad. Like I read this, I read Jeffrey Dahmer's dad's autobiography after I saw that Stone Phillips interview with them back in the day. And it's, it's the sweetest thing in the world, but it's also dark. Lionel Dahmer, his name's Lionel. Lionel Dahmer. But Lionel Dahmer, in that he, he was a scientist, and uh, like basically, like the only thing that he did wrong, if you listen to Jeffrey's story and you listen to his dad's story, the only thing his dad did wrong is that when his parents, when Jeffrey's parents got divorced, Lionel basically, like he remarried and kind of lived his own life and didn't really pay. Like he, he was still involved in Jeffrey's life and Jeffrey would live and stay with him. But it was just like, he just got distracted. He, I mean, honestly, Lionel Dahmer comes across, uh, he's not, not autistic or anything, but he's definitely a certain type of personality. You know, German, Dahmer. I'd say it's a certain type of German personality. Don't mistake it for autism, but it's German. Like they say Germans are really, like, like Germany apparently doesn't have sarcasm. Like they don't understand sarcasm in Germany. It's just, it never, their humor never involved. <laughs> their humor never, <laughs> their humor never evolved to include like facetiousness and sarcasm. And I've heard like, I've heard from people I know, like they've, they've interacted with Germans before and they, I don't know if it's a language barrier or, or what it is, but Germans just have this really hard time understanding sarcasm. I don't know about Lionel Dahmer. I don't know about what his, I don't know how he responds to, to sarcasm. But anyway, get, getting back to the point, it's just like the sweetest but darkest thing because like Lionel Dahmer really wanted to understand why his son turned his name into a synonym for cannibalism and sex murder. My son turned our, our surname that goes back to Germany. He turned this name into a synonym for cannibalistic sex murderer. I'd want to try to figure that out too. And so in his book, Lionel Dahmer, he's like, you know, I, over time, I've done a lot of thinking about like, and maybe Jeffrey got some of these impulses from me. Because he's like, when I was a young man, like I used to blow things up. I've always been very interested in science, but I used to like to blow things up. I used to make little homemade bombs and explosive devices, and I would like I would blow objects up in fields. And it's like, yeah, like every single little boy on the 4th of July, right? That's what my friends and I would do. We would blow things up on the 4th of July. We would occasionally blow things up. And so he's, he's, he's like, I, I would occasionally blow things up in a, in a field. And... And then he's like, and he's like, and you know, the, the sexual aspect, he's like, 
you know, Jeffrey had this preoccupation with sex. And, you know, as everybody knows, Jeffrey Dahmer liked dark-skinned boys. He liked men of a darker complexion who were young. But his dad's like, I kind of understand Jeffrey's preoccupation with sex because when I was young, I had this huge crush on, on big-breasted women. I had this. I was completely preoccupied with buxom women, I think is what he says. He said the word buxom. This is in his book. Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, man, you're such a freak. <laughs> you're such a freak, Lionel. Who knew that as a young man you were preoccupied with buxom women? You're just like your homosexual serial killer son. You blew things up and you liked buxom women. I mean, the other, the other night, like, I found this this woman who sings for a heavy metal band that I've never heard of, and she's got, I, I, you know, I'm not into fake boobs or anything, but she just has such a massive pair of fake boobs, and, like, everything is based around showing them off. And it was like, I stayed up way too late, and I was just, like, scrolling through, just, like, staring at her cleavage. Not even, you know, I mean, it was perverse, but not even that perverse. It was just sort of like, wow. I'm just like Lionel Dahmer and therefore his son Jeffrey. I, a boobs, man. Makes you... <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer probably looked at a pair of boobs. Like, he probably saw cleavage and thought he was seeing, like, some sort of alien sculpture, you know? He probably had no idea what those were. But then Lionel continues in his book, and he says... He's like, I also had this fantasy about a neighbor girl, a buxom neighbor girl who was a few years older than me, where, like, I, I had this fantasy that I would tie her up and I could do anything I wanted to her. Like, not violent, but just, like, he had a sex fantasy that basically involved having control over a woman. And it's like, again, like, I, I don't know, I'm not into bondage. I'm not into ropes and tying people up. I don't like that stuff, but it's pretty normal. That's a pretty normal fantasy to like girls with big boobs, to want to have control over them, and to also enjoy occasionally blowing things up with firecrackers or little homemade devices. You know, it's just, it's funny, because it's like, he was trying to relate to his son, but in effect, he just showed how truly different he is from his son. It was sweet, though. It was sweet, because he's like, how can I possibly understand my violent son through my own lens. And so he was making an effort to relate to his son and why his son ended up the way he did. But it's just like, man, you just proved that you're a normal American male. And you highlighted how different you actually are from your son. Like your son worshipped Emperor Palpatine. I'm not even kidding. This is something a lot of people don't know. But Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite character in Star Wars was Emperor Palpatine. And he used to fantasize that he had that kind of control over people, that he could like use the dark side of the force to make people do what he wanted. And he even got contact lenses. He got yellow contact lenses supposedly to look like the emperor and also to look like some character from one of the exorcist movies that he was obsessed with. It's like your son worshipped Emperor Palpatine. I didn't even know that was possible as a kid. I know I talked about this before because I remember making the same point, but it blew my mind when I found that out. I was like, how come this is never mentioned? Nobody ever mentions that Jeffrey Dahmer was obsessed with the Emperor from Star Wars. And like that blew my mind in particular because I didn't even know you could like the Emperor. 
Like, obviously, Darth Vader is the Dark Knight. He's cool. And he has a redemption story built in. But with the Emperor, it's like as a kid watching Star Wars, I never even fathomed that you could be a fan of him in particular. I never once thought, oh, Emperor Palpatine. You know, yeah, Boba Fett, Darth Vader. Emperor Palpatine, though. It's like, you know you're a serial killer if you're, like, if you're watching Star Wars and you're like, you know who's really cool? The Emperor. But anyway... Uh, With uh, Lionel Dahmer just trying to relate to his son in his own terms. I don't know what the spiritual relevance of that was. I mean, you can see the spiritual relevance of that just in and of itself, where it's like he was trying to use his own experiences to understand something very dark and close to him. What is interesting on this was I didn't plan on going into this Jeffrey Dahmer t- tangent that also has completely distracted me from my point. But one thing that was interesting is in I think it was his final interview from jail. Jeffrey Dahmer talked about how the lie of evolution led him to be a serial killer because he had become born again in prison, and he made the point that reading about the lie of evolution distracted him from God and ultimately contributed to his his outlook, the outlook that allowed for him to kill men. I mean, that's reaching. I see you blaming Charlie Darwin. If it weren't for Charlie Darwin, Jeffrey Dahmer never would have killed men. He never would have kept their bodies in, in his house for, for weeks. Jeffrey Dahmer never would have had sex with a dead person if it weren't for Charles Darwin distracting people from God. But that's... No, it's, it's important, though, to be able to do that, though. I mean, in Lionel Dahmer's case, it was made easier, I suppose, by the fact that this was his son. And he wanted to understand why his son did this. But you can do that with other people. Like, you can do that. You can try to relate to people in similar terms. It doesn't mean that you should be like, oh, well, they like sex. And I like sex. Therefore, we're the same person. He likes, he's a homosexual. And I like big-breasted women. Therefore, we're we're practically the same person because we both think about sex. It's like, even though that's silly... That is a good skill to develop. It's hard to do, though, when someone isn't your son. But it's what you should do. I mean, it it goes back in some ways to what I'm talking about with uh, my friend telling me about Buddhism. Even though I felt that I already knew what she was telling me, she was giving me kind of like a Buddha, Buddhism 101, introducing me to some of the basic concepts, even though I had already read about that, one, I didn't know what she was going to say, and so it would have been an assumption on my part. And I would have been shutting something down. I would have been shutting a conversation down. And since when do I have a problem with repeating myself? Or or for some for that matter, someone else repeating themselves. I mean, that was that's one of the few things that I regret about my relationship with my mom is that as she got older and old people repeat themselves more and more, I would say, Oh, you already told me that. 
And she'd be like, yeah, well, I'm telling you again. And, you know, and I do that to other people. Like, I'll tell people the same story multiple times. And if they're a close enough friend, they'll say, hey, you already told me that. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm telling you again. I'm trying to be more patient about things like that, though. I'm trying to be more patient. Because the thing is, too, is sometimes when you retell something, there's new insight. Or you think about it differently. Maybe it branches, maybe that thought branches into something else. So I've actually discovered that in doing this show. I'll bring a story up or I'll even make a joke that I've made before. But in bringing it up again, it branches out into, there's a new angle, a new dimension of it. Or it just degenerates. I mean, with this show, usually if I bring something up again and again, it just rots. It just degenerates and rots into nothing. But still, every once in a while, you'll say something, you'll be like, oh, if I hadn't repeated myself, that repetition wouldn't have created this new thought. And I mean, that can happen with like a musical instrument. Like you can be playing the same riff over and over again, or playing a riff that you've already played a million times. And then just in one magical moment, you play a variation on it and you're like, hey, that's cool. That's the next part. Or that's an even better version of that. You know, so that kind of thing can happen, too. It's like you shouldn't look at repetition as a prison, even though it's very easy to. And our entire idea of prison is based around repetition. It's this groundhog day where you're in, like if you're actually in physical prison, you're living the same day over and over again. You're doing the same things over and over again. And we associate that with hell. And we feel that in our own lives. I mean, it's what happens in relationships where, like, I still remember this girlfriend getting mad at me. We were going out, we were getting takeout from a place that we got takeout from every week. We would always get takeout from the same place up the street. And I ordered the same thing I always ordered. You know, sometimes I would vary it up. But, you know, I am the kind of person where if I like something, I can stick with it. And I prefer to stick with it. It's, it's, again, it's, it, it is just like that innate conservatism where it's like, I know what I like, and so why would I mess it up? But anyway, I ordered what I always order, and I remember she was, like, disgusted. She was like, oh, you always order that. And that's that's a sign that a relationship is on its way out or that it, it needs some help. Because, like, when you've reached the point of resenting the person over ordering the same thing they always order, and that's what she's doing, too. But I, it's funny that we feel the need to do that, because if I do order food from a place all the time, I, I don't eat out a lot, but... I will kind of feel like I'm, I'll feel kind of stupid if I just order the same thing all the time. I'll be kind of like, you know what, I should really vary it up, but why? Why? It's not because I necessarily even want to. But anyway, like that girlfriend being kind of disgusted with me for just ordering the same thing I always order. I understand it though. You know, it's not like I'm like, oh, what a, what a bitch, what a bitch, man. You know, yeah, it's kind of a bitchy thing to get mad at someone about, but I completely understand it. It's not about what I'm ordering. It's about the repetition. It's about the rut. It's about the stagnation. And people can get through that. People have to power through that for marriage, for long-term commitment. But that repetition can make you go insane. So it's like she wasn't mad at me for what I was ordering. It was just like the loop. She she, She was like, oh, man, the loop. We're in a loop. And again, that makes people feel like they're in hell. But sometimes it's through committing to the loop 
that you find the variation. Sometimes it's when you've just been hanging out in your own backyard and you you see something in your own backyard that you never noticed before and it blows your mind. Or I, I always use the example, like the dumbest example ever, but still it blew my mind one night where I lived in my old house for so many years and there was one night where I was drinking and pacing. That's what I used to do a lot at night. I used to drink and pace around the house listening to music. And I just randomly put my hand on this one wall. It was a wall of my living room. And I suddenly had this thought, and I was like, I've never simply touched that wall. I have never just reached out and touched that wall of my house. I've lived in this house for years. And I've never just touched that wall. It's not like anything cool happened, but it just it made me realize I was just like, that's it's really strange that I've lived in this place and not touched my wall. And the same thing can happen, like you're in your own backyard and you look in some corner. And you're like, I forgot that that was even there. I didn't even know that was there. And sometimes people travel the entire world to feel that. They'll travel across the entire world. They'll be, they'll be like, uh, you know, oh, it's it's uh, the summer between my uh, my junior and senior years of college. What I'm supposed to do is travel and have new experiences. And, and people have fun doing that. I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. You should never travel. No, but people will do that, like trying to kind of force an experience. They'll kind of try to force an epiphany. And I know that that can happen through travel. I've experienced that myself, traveling to foreign countries. But I wouldn't say that it's any more powerful than things I've discovered just walking the same route that I walk in my neighborhood. You can experience it through repetition as well as going out there and trying to find something new. And sometimes it's through the repetition that the breakthroughs happen. And I mean, that's meditation. Sometimes I don't, you know, the idea of being like, oh, I have to do this every morning forever. Well, no, you don't. But still, there's a repetition to it. I'm going to repeat the same mantras in my head. I'm going to sit in the same posture. I'm going to do the same breathing exercises. That sounds awful. It's it's any kind of practice. That's why it's called practice. Because it's like you think about practicing guitar, and truly practicing guitar means playing the same things over and over again to the point where you might be bored by them. You might never want to play them again. Exercise is the same way. Any kind of discipline is the same way where you, you'll meet people who go to the gym for the first time or start working out for the first time and they're, they're very excited. They're like, oh, dude, I went to the gym. I went to the gym. I feel so amazing. Like I'm going to do this all the time. And then like two days later where they're really sore or they do it for a little while. Like they bought their gym membership and they do it for a little while. They have this initial momentum. But then when the reality is that you have to do this forever, if you want to maintain it, you have to keep it up. You have to maintain a steady and consistent discipline. People get burned out on that alone. Because it's like, oh, wait, I thought that I could just do this once. Because this is a phenomenon I've noticed with a lot of people who try try to get in shape and then give up. Is they do it once or they do it for a week, or they do it for a month, and they're really high on that initial experience of, I'm finally doing it. 
But somewhere in their mind, they've kind of developed this idea that getting in shape means, oh, I, I go to the gym once and I do it and I'm in shape forever. When the reality is it's subtle, it's gradual. Many days you don't want to do it. There are days where you, you do not want to do it. But it's through that repetition that you experience breakthroughs, physical breakthroughs, all kinds of breakthroughs, really, with your, the way you feel, the way you think. But you couldn't get those. You couldn't get to those breakthroughs. And those breakthroughs would be less meaningful if they didn't come through repetition. It's almost like you're playing the same riff over and over again. There's three notes. And then all of a sudden, your finger just naturally goes to this other note that kind of ties it all together. It's kind of like that. But I understand why people like ceremony. I understand why they like decoration. Because you think there's a lot of people where if they didn't go to their high school graduation, they wouldn't feel like they actually graduated. If they didn't have a birthday party, they wouldn't feel like they actually got a year older. Even though they've been getting to that point for the last year. Every single day, every single minute, every single millisecond for the last year, you have been gradually building to the point where you can say, I'm 17, I'm 17. You know, you, you finally reached the point where you can say I'm 17, even though you've been gradually building to that point every single millisecond since you turned 16. But it's having a birthday, it's having your birthday acknowledged that makes you actually feel like you went through a process. That's the ceremony. And it is kind of funny going back to like being a kid and my mom telling me, oh, if you ever have a birthday party and someone buys you a Ninja Turtles action figure you already have, just pretend like you don't have it and thank them. The entire concept is really funny, like the idea that we're celebrating the fact that you're alive and you've been alive since this day, on this day, for this many years. And so what we're going to do is we're going to bring you gifts. And it makes sense within a family because it's like your family's like, we're so happy that you came into our lives. We are so happy that you are part of our family that we are going to give you things. But then it's even funnier that like as a little kid in particular, like you invite these kids and in some cases they're kids you don't even know. Like, I had birthday parties that I look back on, and there were never a ton of kids, but let's say there were 10 kids, 15 kids at the most, maybe, 10 kids. They're all expected to bring you something. They're all expected to make an offering at this ceremony. Like, their moms have to go out, and they might not have very much money, or they might have a ton of money. You don't know. You don't even know. You don't know if somebody is capable of even buying a gift. Which I think is one of the reasons why water finds its own level. You know, I do think water kind of finds its own level in that regard. But still, it's like you don't know. Like when you invite a little kid to your birthday party or your mom does it for you, like she doesn't call their mom and be like, hey, uh, we're, we're inviting you to, to little Eric's birthday party. I just want to make sure that your family is in a financially stable position 
so that you might be able to buy an action figure for my son and bring it to participate in this ritual that confirms that he's now older. Like, you don't know what the financial situation is. And, you know, if somebody, obviously, if somebody didn't bring a present, you're not going to, hopefully your mom is going to explain to you that not everybody can do that. But it is very funny to me that one, like you're, everybody's expected to bring an offering. Everybody's expected to participate in this exchange, including kids who you might not even know that well. Like there were ki- there was definitely like one or two kids who came to birthday parties when I was in kindergarten, first grade, who like never came. They never showed up in my life again. And I got invited to birthday parties, too. Like, I still think about this kid who he invited me and a couple of my friends to his birthday and he was brand new to the school. And he, he invited just a bunch of boys from his class. And we didn't know him. We didn't know anything about him. It was weird. And it was particularly weird because his dad was his dad was this middle-aged guy, not very athletic. He kind of looked like what you would imagine a computer programmer would have looked like in the 80s, where it's just like he was kind of like maybe a little bit pudgy, balding with glasses. And they had a basketball hoop outside, so all the kids were, of course, playing basketball. I think we were in fifth grade, so we were like maybe 11 years old. And his dad was like, schooling us like his dad was playing basketball against us but and and like I said he wasn't an athletic man but he's taller and he's a lot bigger and he was just like shooting over us like grabbing rebounds like just completely ruining us in basketball and it was just so funny because it's like first of all like none of us even know this family like it'd be one thing if this was my friend's dad like if, if my friend's dad was playing basketball with us on his birthday and schooling us, it would be kind of funny, because sometimes dads do that. It's like, oh yeah, you know, normally I play around and let you guys win a little bit, but you know, sometimes I just got to show you that you're little, and I'm I'm the dad, and so I'm going to just beat you at basketball. Like, that can be fun and funny, but like, we didn't know this guy, and he seemed to be taking it very seriously. Like, we didn't even know the kid, and I still, his name was Nathan Shavlik, and we've tried to find him. One of my friends who went to the birthday party, who knew him, he was at our school for a year and then he disappeared. We didn't know him before that year. We didn't know him after that year. And there's no online footprint. There's no sign that he ever even existed. And it makes you wonder too, because that was probably like 1997. And like he could have died. That kid could have died in 1998 or 1999. Like, he could have died pre-internet, and there's no article, there's no reference to it. And it's very strange when someone who's my age has no online footprint at all. But nonetheless, I, I participated in that kid's birthday ritual. And I brought him something. And that's even harder to do when you have no idea what the kid likes. What does he like? There's politics to it. You got to get the kids something they like. Or if they already have it, they then have to use the politics of like, oh, pretend you don't already have it. It's interesting. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on, even with kids' birthday parties. But it's, it, once again, though, it's in the exchange. It's in the idea that this person wanted to give me something. And it's more than just the material item. You know, I'm that way about everything. You know, sometimes I don't keep things, but I've had people give me crystals and stuff before, and I would never seek crystals out. I don't actually understand why people hate crystals so much. 
I understand there's a lot of pushback against new agey crystal worship. Does having a couple crystals around mean that you worship them? Does it mean that you believe crystals will heal you? Last I checked, no. But it's funny how just something that occurs naturally that's beautiful can become completely associated with one thing. Like I have this crystal, this quartz thing in my car. My friend gave it to me and I just... She gave it to me and I put it in my car. And I just thought, yeah, this this just stays in my car now. But someone would see that and be like, oh, so you put a crystal in your car, huh? You think that that's going to heal you? Oh, you think that's going to save you? Oh, is that crystal going to speed traffic up when you're stuck in traffic? People just make these assumptions. But you can see where things, just that association. I mean, you think about rainbows. Like, you cannot use a rainbow today without it being associated with a very specific social movement. I'm fine with that. I'm not a big rainbow guy to begin with. Gay people can have the rainbow. I was never drawn to rainbows to begin with. I don't I just don't like primary colors. I don't like I don't like the color wheel in and of itself. I don't like seeing every single primary color side by side. So, you know, rainbows are an amazing phenomenon to witness, but I, I don't feel like gay people stole the rainbow from me. I don't feel like I would have made as good a use of it as they have. Rainbow's not mine. I don't care. But I feel the same way about crystals, though. It's like, I don't care that there's a certain type of witchy woman who believes crystals are all-powerful. They seem pretty significant, though. I will say that. Crystals seem significant. Just the fact that they occur at all and they look the way they do. They look truly magical. Like, if you were to ask somebody, what is something that occurs in nature? Like, if you gave someone a riddle, what, what is something that occurs in nature and it's very hard, but it's light? And it almost seems to glow when the sun hits it. A crystal. But it's like, yeah, crystals have become associated with a certain type of person, but it's like, you know, does it belong to them? Did they create crystals? And people can easily get into that kind of tunnel vision. Where because a certain type of person uses a certain object in a certain way, you feel like you can't. And I think with the rainbow, it's like, yeah, if you put a rainbow on something, everyone's going to assume it's a statement. And I don't have any better use for a rainbow myself. Like, I don't have anything that I was... Oh, man, I, I was planning on doing something with the rainbow. I was... Dude, I was... Dude, I was planning on doing so much good art. I was planning on doing so much good art with rainbow imagery. And the gay men took it away. Take it. I feel the same way about crystals, too. It's like, if a Wiccan woman... I don't know if Wiccans like crystals. It seems like that's the same sort of person. But if a Wiccan woman loves crystals and thinks that they are all powerful, go ahead. Go ahead. Do what you want with those crystals.
but it's hard to do that. And I mean, that's one of the biggest roadblocks you run into. I avoided genuinely good ideas. I, I avoided ideas that I depend on kind of today because I associated them with a certain type of person. I avoided art and music because I associated it with a certain type of person. And there, there are some cases where you just can't get past it. We live in a time where some things have been so con- so heavily associated and consumed by a certain type of person that it's almost impossible to separate the two. And that sucks, but it, it's life. <laughs> Someone might feel that way about you. Someone might see something that you're into and think, God dang it, I wanted to be into that thing, but a guy like that's into it. And that tells you you're either not ready for it or it's not for you. Turns out there's plenty of other things to get into. And you might find your own roundabout way back to that thing anyway. And you go, okay. But you don't know. It's it's worthwhile listening to those people, though. Like, you don't know. You know, if you listen, like, I mean, there's this new agey show. It used to be a public access show. Now it's a YouTube show, which is public access. And he's an older guy now. The guy who runs it now, he's an older guy. And he'll bring people on. Like it'll, it, it covers history, psychology, parapsychology, the supernatural. It covers an entire spectrum. It's a very open-minded show. A lot of people would just dismiss it outright in our current climate. Trust the science. Trust the science. A lot of those types of people would just shoot this show down. But it never tries to make any claims. It never tries to prove anything. They, it just, they talk to different types of people. The conversations are always intelligent. Every once in a while, someone will be on who you're like, yeah, this person's pretty far gone. They're pretty far out there. But for the most part, I just enjoy having it on in the background. Every once in a while, it'll have somebody who I feel like truly knows what they're talking about. But beyond that, I just think, oh, it's, and, and he will have people on. Like, he will have healers. He will have people who are into crystals. And most of what they say isn't going to interest me. But do I want to prevent them from saying anything interesting to me? Do I want to limit myself? Do I want to go into it with a mindset of, oh, oh, she's talking about crystals. That means she's stupid. And if I listen at all, it should be only with scorn and mockery. No. She might say something that's interesting in all of that. Or it might just be something to have on in the background. That itself is a purpose. And so it does go back to my friend telling me about Buddhism where nothing she said was disagreeable at all. But it was a situation where I thought, like, I don't know what she's going to tell me. And if I assume that I know, well, I'll never know what she's going to tell me. And she might tell me something I already know, but it might interact with my knowledge in a way that is refreshing and new. And the fact that I'm still talking about it tells you everything in and of itself, that that was a valuable conversation. Even if it's meta, because, you know, even if it's meta like this, but that's what spirituality is. Spirituality is a meta conversation. That's why it's so hard to contain. And that's why the people who try to contain it and gatekeep it give it such a bad name. But you'll find that it is a meta conversation where... The conversation wasn't even about 
someone explaining Buddhist terminology to me. The spiritual, the meta-conversation that was taking place was me having to keep my own ego in check by saying, you know what, even though I've read about this, I don't know what she's going to say. I don't know what I'm going to get out of this. And this is part of an experience that I'm going through tonight where I'm going to go listen to people chant and actually do a little chant in myself. It's what we call doing a little chant in ourselves because I did. Because I wanted to see, because I was sitting there. I mean, let's just get into that, because I think I've said what I needed to say about this little, when she gave me this primer. And she did it really well. She was very clear. You know, it was it was awesome. But it was more of a meta conversation. Like the spiritual component for me in that conversation was the fact that it was a conversation about spirituality. It, the conversation inside of me was about a conversation, a conversation about a conversation. But even the chanting itself, like looking back at that, because I went there and I sat down and they got into it. And I, I, number one, I was impressed because they were all so good at it. The very first thought I had, it wasn't like I was sitting there because we were all sitting in these chairs. There were three rows of chairs in front of this altar and we were all sitting there and they just went into it. They started chanting and they all knew what they were doing because they do this regularly. They do this every day. And what was funny though is the guys, they sounded like Asian men. Like they were just these white men, but it's like they had picked up kind of the tonality because they had obviously done this with all kinds of people. And they actually, they almost, they had that kind of like, oh, you know, it's, it was just funny. Like the tonality of their voices kind of took on the characteristics of the culture that it came from. Is that role play? No, you know, no, it's, it's just, they just match the tones of the people who they learned this from, I guess. But do they, do they, do they enjoy the fact that they sound that way? Probably because I didn't feel that way. Like I didn't even want to participate because they, they gave me like a little booklet that included the chants with it and I could read along and they're very repetitive. And I was like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to chant. Even though everybody else was chanting and nobody would have heard me specifically, I, I got into it. Like I, I eventually just started doing it and I was doing it at the wrong times. You know, I was just, I, and it doesn't matter though. You know, you, that, that humiliation fear kicks in where you're like, oh, they're going to hear, the, they're going to hear the fact that I'm mispronouncing it. They're going to hear that my rhythm is off. They're going to hear that my voice isn't accustomed to this kind of chanting. And they're going to hate me. They're going to think, oh, who's that stupid guy who doesn't know how to chant? No, of course not. They're happy to have somebody there. Are there people who would think that? Sure. Are there undeveloped people who would be like, oh, that guy, he's at his first chanting event and he doesn't even know what he's doing. But again, that was more of a meta experience too. Like when they started chanting, it wasn't like some light turned on in my head. It wasn't like I achieved enlightenment. It wasn't even like I even had an epiphany. It was also a, a meta experience in the sense that I was just listening to the sonics of it. Like I let all, I was meditating and I let all, all other thoughts go and I was just hearing the sonics of what they were doing. And... 
it was kind of like listening to loops. Like if you, if you've ever listened to loop music, I'm trying to think of like who, like Steve Reich or somebody like that, where some people have even made loops based on vocal recordings. So they'll take a sample, like a five second sample or a three a three second sample, and they just repeat that over and over and over again for an hour. But after about five minutes, ten minutes, it no longer sounds like that original sample. Like whereas when you first started listening to it, you could hear exactly what that person was saying. But after 10 minutes, you forget where it begins and ends, and you're just hearing the tonality. You're just hearing the sounds. You're just hearing the rhythm. And it forms kind of a beat. That's what happens with a sample that's just repeated for an hour straight, is that it turns into a beat. It turns into a texture. And that's what happened with this chanting, where it turned into kind of its own... But I, I, I couldn't tell where it began or ended. And that can happen with melodies. If you've ever written a melody, the last note in the melody, or, or depending on like the progression, you know, depending on how like the notes progress, you can turn that. And, and if you re- just to explain this properly, like the the last note. Let's just stick with that. Like the last note that you choose in a melody can completely change the way that melody sounds as it's repeated over and over again, where you can forget what the original melody even is. And that happens too. Like if you turn on music and it's already like halfway through a song, like I've turned on music before that I like, stuff that I know, you know, stuff that's in my heart that I've been listening to my entire life. But sometimes I'll put it on and it's like in the middle of a riff. And because I'm starting from the middle of that riff, it seems completely different. And my entire sense for how it begins and ends is different. And so you, you lose your sense of punctuation and time in that situation. And that's what happened with this chanting, where it's like I could no longer tell where they began and ended. And so I would just kind of start where I started. And like the actual point that I thought was the starting point turned out to be the middle of it. And that's a hallucination. I was hallucinating. Because my sense of time, my sense of punctuation was gone. And all I was following was the rhythm and texture of it. And, you know, I did, you know, I never fully got, I never felt it when I was chanting, but it was a good experience to try that. Because I did feel some sort of fear. I was sort of afraid to actually participate. And I don't like the part, I don't like compelled participation. Like when I was in college, this woman came and read us this awful poem. It, it was weird. Like she, she read us, she was this guest poet who spoke to my class and she read us this poem and it was all about how like a, like a Mexican Comcast worker came to her house to install Kate, to install her internet. And she like, wanted to have sex with him. And so it was like this poem about like, or like essay or something about like the sexual tension she felt and how like she heard something in his pocket and she thought it was a condom. It was really fucking weird and sick. I didn't, I, and she was a middle-aged woman. I can only imagine the kinds of things she's talking about now, 
but it was yeah it was this it, it was weirdest fucking thing like sitting there in this class listening to her and she and at that point too i was such a curmudgeon like because you know all my talk in this episode about oh you just give people a chance you never know what you're going to learn from them oh this this middle-aged poet talking to a liberal arts college about this one time that a Mexican Comcast worker came to her house and she developed this weird fantasy and tension about wanting to sleep with him, which she didn't do. I mean, he probably had no idea. He was probably just trying to install the dang internet. And she heard like, she, she's like, I, I heard, he reached into his pocket and I heard the rustle of foil in his pocket and it's, it sounded like a condom wrapper. That could have been anything, lady. But I, I don't know. I would probably still walk out of that. But the reason I actually walked out was at one point, like she'd been talking for a while, and I don't know if the, I don't know if she's famous. I don't know anything about her. The poem was just such posturing, though. It was just such posturing. It's like she was trying to tell us. Like it felt like she was trying to signal that I like non-white men, and I think about sex. I'm sexually liberated. What's cool about it, though, is that it was like Comcast installing her internet, so it was like ultra-modern. But the whole thing just felt like she was signaling. But that wasn't why I walked out. Why I walked out was, at one point, she said, I want everybody to stand up and just shake. Everybody to stand up and go... Like, and if you can't, you can't see me. If, if you can see me, there's a problem. Because you can't see me, I just took my arms and I, I waved my arms around like noodles and like rotated my hips. I just did, I did like a shake. I shook my whole body and did, that's what she did. She goes, I want everybody to stand up and, and just shake. We've been sitting for a long time, guys. I want you to get up and just go. And so she did that. And then you know what she said? She goes, and don't be that person who embarrasses yourself by being too cool to do it. And I'm like, oh, she's smart. She is smart because she's she's already turning the humiliation around on the people who don't want it. Like, because now if you refuse to stand up and shake upon command like this woman wants you to, if you if you don't play this sick game of Simon Says, now you're the one who's embarrassing yourself. And when she said that, like everybody was standing up. So I just stood up and I walked right out the door and never went back. I was like, this isn't, I, I know this isn't on the test. I know that this woman's reading is not on the test. So I left and I would leave again, honestly. But it's that sort of thing. I've always been completely resistant to that. I have always been completely resistant to any time a speaker tells you to do something that is potentially humiliating. Not because if I'm, if I'm going to be humiliated, I want to humiliate myself. And I don't want somebody to tell me that I'm humiliating myself more by not humiliating myself. But again, I, I learned something from that woman, but it was, it was a meta experience. I didn't learn anything from what she actually told us. I learned something from the experience. It became a meta experience, a meta conversation with me because I didn't forget it. But I, I just decided, oh, she just put me in a double bind because that's what she did. She put us in a double bind by saying, get up and shake. Get up with all your peers and shake. 
But then she put us in a double bind by saying, and if you sit, if you don't do it, you're embarrassing yourself even more. So she put us between a rock and a hard place. And when someone does that, I just leave. I don't let people do that to me. I never have and I never will. I'll let people do shitty things to me. I will never let somebody put me in a double bind because I go, oh, okay, you're telling me I should leave. And that's what I'll do. Fortunately, with the chanting, that wasn't the feeling at all. That wasn't the feeling at all. With the chanting, it was just I was there to observe, but then I decided to participate. I decided I'll, I'll probably never do this again. Let's just see what happens if I try to chant. And you know what? I did get into the rhythm of it. I did actually, as I did it, I started to kind of figure out where it started and ended. I started to kind of understand the loop. And the best part about it, though, was that they had this dog. And this is before I had Batty. Like, I knew Batty. I've known Batty since he was a puppy. But this is before Batty lived with me. And so I, I didn't have a dog. And it was, it was around the time that I was just starting to get comfortable with dogs. And these people had a dog who was hanging around. And the dog just spent the entire night with me. Like the dog, like I was just standing around at one point and the dog was just hanging out by my legs. And then when I was doing the chanting, I looked down and the dog was down by my feet, tearing apart a toy. Like it, it, like while we were all doing this chanting, the dog completely shredded a toy. Like it was a completely intact toy. And by the time we were done chanting, this dog had just, there was only a cotton at my feet. There were just shreds of cotton that was once a toy at my feet. And that was perfect. That to me was it. The fact that we were all doing this concentrated spiritual exercise and the dog was just shredding a toy at my feet. It was perfect. I've barely drank my bang. This is actually the healthiest way to drink bang. Bang. Almost called it Bane. <laughs> it is the healthiest way to drink Bane. Bane. Because I don't drink it very fast. If I talk and drink a fresh can of Bang at the same time, I, I sip it and I, I forget about it. So it's the healthiest way to drink a Bang energy drink is to do a podcast while you do it. Bane. I had a friend growing up, my redneck friend. He, uh, I, I use rednecks like black people. Like how other people are like my, my black friend, that's me and rednecks where I'm like, I had a red, I had a redneck friend once that gives me credibility, right guys? Except, uh, oh, anyway, um, but he couldn't say his G's like if he said the word gang, he would say gain. He, like, and he actually did say that. He, I remember him saying once, he's like, oh, you know, like. Stephanie's boyfriend is in a gang. But because I knew him so well, I knew exactly what he meant. He's in a gang. But it was an interesting, I guess you'd call that a speech impediment. He had a few like that. But one of them was saying NG, gain, bane. I wonder what causes that. Because I haven't come across that from other people, I don't think. I, I've never had any other friends who... Say A N G is ain gain. That's I mean like speech impediments are interesting too. Cause like they, I don't know. My mom tried to tell me as a kid because I asked my mom about speech impediments. I asked her like, why do people talk that way? Like, why do people have? Why can't people say certain things? Or why do they mispronounce? Because we had this woman in our neighborhood. 
as a kid, and she said everything wrong. It wasn't even a speech impediment. She just said things wrong. Like the way that she pronounced everything, like even words that aren't hard to pronounce, like normal words, she kind of had her own way of saying everything. And she wasn't eccentric. She wasn't a weird woman. She was a completely normal mom. But it was like everything she said kind of had its own, she had her own way of saying it, her own way of pronouncing it. And I I asked my mom about that and she was just like, oh, I think she hears it differently. (laughs) I was like, my mom said, "I, I think she hears things differently than we do. And I think there's some some truth to that because you never know what somebody actually hears. Like, yeah, you do these hearing tests. You can measure whether somebody hears things as well as you do. Like, oh, raise your hand if you heard the beep. Raise your right hand if you heard the beep in your right headphone. They used to do those tests for us as a kid. Those were esoteric. That was esoteric. uh, those hearing tests that they would give us every year as kids where it's like we put these really old-fashioned headphones on and this machine would would make beeps these little analog beeps and they'd be in different places like they would be like you would hear them some you'd hear the beep sometimes like in the lower right of the headphone and then sometimes it would be in the upper right of the headphone and it would be it would go from quiet to loud i, I you know honestly i enjoyed that I enjoyed the hearing tests because there would always be one. There would always be one of the beeps that was incredibly quiet. It usually wasn't the last one. It was usually like the second or third to last. It's like they had been testing your ear, your hearing and then right before, you know, it, it, it's penultimate. It's the penultimate beep. The second beep before the last, the penultimate beep was always the quietest. It was almost like, oh, you think you're almost done. Well, here's a really quiet one. Let's see how good your hearing really is. And that one, like if there was any kind of atmospheric noise in the room, any ambient noise, you could miss that one. The penultimate beep. But yeah, I, I cracked up. Like when I was a kid and my mom said, like, I think, and she was genuine. My mom, my mom was serious. She was like, I think that some people like who have speech impediments or they say things wrong. I think they just hear it wrong. They're hearing something different than you. I thought that was the funniest thing in the world, but it's something we can't really measure. Like we can measure like how well someone hears sounds, but we can't really measure whether or not they hear them accurately. And for that matter, like whether they're saying what they're hearing, like my friend who said gain instead of gang or bane instead of bang i don't know whether he was hearing it wrong or whether he was hearing it right but his voice was just incapable of saying it right you never really know it's a mystery and then uh, what else we got here penultimate beep welcome to the penultimate beep Yeah, I got stuff to do, so this will be it today. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me 
and plains I see a land where children 